Section 27 of The Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 Religion, Part 12. Let us now suppose that a hundred years have passed, and let us visit the village again. The place itself and the whole country around have been transformed. The forest has disappeared, and in its stead are fields covered with the glossy blades of the young rice, with the tall red tufted maize, with the millet and the guinea corn, with the yellow flowers of the tobacco plant growing in wide fields, and with large shrubberies of cotton, the snowy wool peeping forth from the expanding leaves. Before us stands a great town, surrounded by walls of red clay, flanked by towers, and with heavy wooden gates. Day dawns, and the women come forth to the brook, decorously dressed in blue cotton robes, passed over the hair as a hood. Men ride forth on horseback, wearing white turbans and swords suspended on their right shoulders by a crimson sash. They are the unmixed descendants of the forest savage. Their faces are those of pure negroes, but the expression is not the same. Their manners are grave and composed. They salute one another, saying in the Arabic, Peace be with you. The palaver house, or town hall, is also the mosque. The parliamentary debates and the law trials, which are there held, have all the dignity of a religious service. They are opened with prayer, and the name of the Creator is often solemnly invoked by the orator or advocate, while all the elders touch their foreheads with their hands and murmur in response, Amina, Amina, Amen, Amen. The town is pervaded by a bovine smell sweet to the nostrils of those who have travelled long in the beefless lands of the people of the forest. Sounds of industry may also be heard, not only the clinking of the blacksmith's hammer, but also the rattling of the loom, the thumping of the cloth-maker, and the song of the cordwainer as he sits cross-legged making saddles or shoes. The women, with bow and distaff and spindle, are turning the soft tree-wall into thread, the work in the fields is done by slaves. The elders smoke or take snuff in their verandas, and sometimes study a page of the Koran. When the evening draws on, there is no sound of flute or drum. A bonfire of brushwood is lighted in the marketplace, and the boys of the town collect around it with wooden boards in their hands and bawl their lessons, swaying their bodies to and fro, by which movement they imagine the memory is assisted. Then rises a long, loud, harmonious cry. Come to prayers, come to prayers, come to security. God is great, he liveth and he dieth not. Come to prayers, O thou bountiful. La illah illa Allah, Muhammad Rasul Allah, Allahu Akbaru, Allahu Akbar. Such towns as these may be less interesting to the traveller than the pagan villages. He finds them merely a second-hand copy of Eastern life. But though they are not so picturesque, their inhabitants are happier and better men. Violent and dishonest deeds are no longer arranged by pecuniary compensation. Husbands can no longer set wife-traps for their friends. Adultery is treated as a criminal offence. 
men can no longer squander away their relations at the gaming table and stake their own bodies on a throw men can no longer be tempted to vice and crime under the influence of palm wine women can no longer be married by a great chief in herds and treated like beasts of burden and like slaves each wife has an equal part of her husband's love by law it is not permitted to forsake and degrade the old wife for the sake of the young each wife has her own house and the husband may not enter until he has knocked at the door and received the answer bismillah in the name of god every boy is taught to read and write in arabic which is the religious and official language in the sudan as latin was in europe in the middle ages he also writes his own language with the arabic character as we write ours with the roman letter in such countries the policy of isolation is at an end they are open to all the moslems in the world and are thus connected with the lands of the east here there is a remarkable change and one that deserves a place in history it is a movement the more interesting since it is still actively going on the mohammedan religion has already overspread a region of negro land as large as europe it is firmly established not only in the africa of the mediterranean and the nile and in the oases of the sahara but also throughout that part of the continent which we have termed the platform of the niger in 1797 mungo park discovered the niger in the heart of africa at a point where it is as broad as the thames at westminster in 1817 rene Cayley crossed it at a point considerably higher up in 1822 major lang attempted to reach it by striking inland from sierra leone but was forced by the natives to return when he was only fifty miles distant from the river and in 1869 i made the same attempt was turned back at the same place but made a fresh expedition and reached the river at a higher point than cayley or park but my success also was incomplete for native wars made it impossible for me to reach the source though it was near at hand and that still remains a splendid prize for one who will walk in my footsteps as i walked in those of lang the source of the niger as given in the maps was fixed by lang from native information which i ascertained to be correct there is no doubt that this river rises in the backwoods of sierra leone at a distance of only two hundred miles from the coast it runs for some time as a foaming hill torrent bearing obscure and barbarous names and at the point where i found it glides into the broad calm breast of the plateau and receives its illustrious name of the joliba or great river it flows northeast and enters the sahara as if intending like the nile to pour its waters into the mediterranean sea but suddenly it turns towards the east so that herodotus who heard of it when he was at memphis supposed that it joined the nile and such was the prevailing opinion not only among the greeks but also among the arabs in the middle ages they did not know that the eccentric river again wheels round flows towards the sea near which it rose passes through the latitude of its birth and having thus described three quarters of a circle debouches by many mouths into the bight of benin so singular a course might well baffle the speculations of geographers and the investigations of explorers 
the people who dwell on the banks of the river do not know where it ends. I was told by some that it went to Mecca, by others that it went to Jerusalem. Mungo Park's own theory was ludicrously incorrect. He believed that the Congo was its mouth. Others declared that it never reached the sea at all. It was Lander who discovered the mouth of the Niger, at one time as mysterious as the sources of the Nile, and so established the hypothesis which Reichard had advanced, and which Mannert had declared to be contrary to nature. The Niger platform, or basin, is flat, with here and there a line of rolling hills containing gold. The vegetation consists of high, coarse grass and trees of small stature, except on the banks of streams, where they grow to a larger size. The palm oil tree is not found on this plateau, but the sheer butter or tallow tree abounds in natural plantations which will some day prove a source of enormous wealth. As the river flows on, these trees disappear, the plains widen and are smoothed out, and the country assumes the character of the Sahara. The Negroes who inhabited the platform of the Niger lived chiefly on the banks of the river, subsisting on lotus root and fish. Like all savages, they were jealous and distrustful. Their intercourse was that of war. But nature, by means of a curious contrivance, has rendered it impossible for men to remain eternally apart. Common salt is one of the mineral constituents of the human body, and savages, who live chiefly on vegetable food, are dependent upon it for their life. In Africa, children may be seen sucking it like sugar. Come and eat with us today, says the hospitable African. We are going to have salt for dinner. It is not in all countries that this mineral food is to be found, but the saltless lands in the Sudan contain gold dust, ivory and slaves and so a system of barter is arranged, and isolated tribes are brought into contact with one another. The two great magazines are the desert and the ocean. At the present day, the white powdery English salt is carried on donkeys and slaves to the upper waters of the Niger, and is driving back the crystalline salt of the Sahara. In the ancient days, the salt of the plateau came entirely from the mines of Bilna and Tudeni in the desert which were occupied and worked by Negro tribes. But at a period far remote, before the foundations of Carthage were laid, a Berber nation, now called the Tuareks, overspread the desert and conquered the oases and the mines. This terrible people are yet the scourge of the peaceful farmer and the passing caravan. They camp in leather tents, they are armed with lance and sword, and with shields on which is painted the image of a cross. The Arabs call them the muffled ones, for their mouths and noses are covered with a bandage, sometimes black, sometimes white, above which sit in deep sockets, like ant lions in their pits, a pair of dark, cruel, sinister-looking eyes. They levy tolls on all travellers, and murder those who have the reputation of unusual wealth, as they did Miss Tin, whose iron water tanks they imagined to be filled with gold. When they poured down the Sahara, they were soon attracted by the rich pastures and alluvial plains of the black country. In course of time, their raids were converted into conquests, and they established a line of kingdoms from the Niger to the Nile, in the borderland between the Sahara and the parallel ten degrees north. 
Timbuktu, Hausa, Bornu, Bagiami, Wadai, Darfur, and Kordofan were the names of these kingdoms. In all of them, Islam is now the religion of the state. All of them belong to the Asiatic world. The Tuareks of the Sudan were merely the ruling castes, and were much darkened by harem blood, but they communicated freely with their brethren of the desert, who had dealings with the Berbers beyond the Atlas. When the Andalusia of the Arabs became a polite, civilized land, crowds of ingenious artisans, descended from the old Roman craftsmen, or from the Greek emigrants, or from their Arab apprentices, took architecture over to North Africa. The city of Morocco was filled with magnificent palaces and mosques. It became the metropolis of an independent kingdom. It was called the Baghdad of the West. Its doctors were as learned as the doctors of Cordova, its musicians as skilful as the musicians of Seville. A wealthy and powerful Morocco could not exist without its influence being felt across the desert. The position of Timbuktu, in reference to Morocco, was precisely that of Meroe to Memphis or to Thebes. The Sahara, it is true, is much wider across from Morocco to Timbuktu than from Egypt to Ethiopia. But the introduction of camels brought the Atlas and the Niger near to one another. The Tuareks, who had previously lived on horses, under whose bellies they tied water bottles of leather when they went on a long journey, had been able to cross the desert only at certain seasons of the year. But now, with the aid of the camel, which they at once adopted, and from which they bred the famous Mahara strain, they could cross the Sahara at its widest point in a few days. A regular trade was established between the two countries, and was conducted by the Berbers. Arab merchants, desirous of seeing, with their own eyes, the wondrous land of ivory and gold, took passage in the caravans, crossed the yellow seas, sprang from their camels upon the green shores of the Sudan, and, kneeling on the banks of the Niger, with their faces turned towards Mecca, dipped their hands in its waters, and praised the name of the Lord. They journeyed from city to city, and from court to court, and composed works of travel which were read with eager delight all over the Moslem world, from Spain to Hindustan. The Arabs thronged to this newly discovered world. They built factories, they established schools, they converted dynasties. They covered the river with mastered vessel, they built majestic temples with graceful minaret and swelling dome. Theological colleges and public libraries were founded. Camels came across the desert laden with books. The Negroes swarmed to the lectures of the mullahs. Plato and Aristotle were studied by the banks of the Niger, and the glories of Granada were reflected at Timbuktu. That city became the refuge of political fugitives and criminals from Morocco. In the 16th century, the emperor dispatched across the desert the company of harbuskiers, who, with their strange, terrible weapons, everywhere triumphed, like the soldiers of Cortes and Pizarro in Mexico and Peru. These musketeers made enormous conquests, not for their master, but for themselves. They established an oligarchy of their own. It was afterwards dethroned by the natives, but there yet exist men who, as Bart informs us, are called the descendants of the musketeers, and who wear a distinctive dress. But that imperial expedition was the last exploit of the Moors. 
after the conquest of Granada by the Christians and of Algeria by the Turks, Morocco, encompassed by enemies, became a savage and isolated land. Timbuktu, its commercial dependent, fell into decay and is now chiefly celebrated as a cathedral town. The Arabs carried cotton and the art of its manufacture into the Sudan, which is one of the largest cotton-growing areas in the world. Its Manchester is Kano, which manufactures blue cloth and coloured plaids, clothes a vast Negro population, and even exports its goods to the lands of the Mediterranean Sea. Denham and Clapperton, who first reached the lands of Hausa and Bomu, were astonished to find among the Negroes magnificent courts, regiments of cavalry, the horses caparisoned in silk for gala days and clad in coats of mail for war long trains of camels laden with salt and natron and corn and cloth and cowrie shells which form the currency and cola nuts which the arabs call the coffee of the negroes they attended with wonder the gigantic fairs at which the cotton goods of manchester the red cloth of saxony double-barrelled guns razors tea and sugar nuremberg ware and writing paper were exhibited for sale they also found merchants who offered to cash their bills upon houses at Tripoli, and scholars acquainted with Avicenna, Averroes, and the Greek philosophers. The Mohammedan religion was spread in Central Africa to a great extent by the travelling Arab merchants, who were welcomed everywhere at the Negro or semi-Negro courts, and who frequently converted the pagan kings by working miracles, that is to say, by means of events which accidentally follow their solemn prayers, such as the healing of a disease, rain in the midst of drought, or a victory in war. But the chief instrument of conversion was the school. It is much to the credit of the Negroes that they keenly appreciate the advantages of education. They appear to possess an instinctive veneration and affection for the book. Wherever Mohammedans settled, the sons of chiefs were placed under their tuition. A Mohammedan quarter was established. It was governed by its own laws. Its sheikh rivalled in power and finally surpassed the native kings. The machinery of the old pagan court might still go on. The Negro chief might receive the magnificent title of Sultan. He might be surrounded by albinos and dwarfs and big-headed men and buffoons. He might sit in a cage or behind a curtain in a palace with seven gates and received the ceremonial visits of his nobles, who stripped off a garment at each gate, and came into his presence naked, and cowered on the ground, and clapped their hands, and sprinkled their heads with dust, and then turned round and sat with their backs presented in reverence towards him, as if they were unable to bear the sight of his countenance, shining like a well-blacked boot. But the Arab, or Moorish sheikh, would be in reality the king, deciding all questions of foreign policy, of peace and war, of laws and taxes and commercial regulations, holding a position resembling that of the Gothic generals who placed Libius Severus and Augustulus upon the throne, of the mayors of the palace beside the Merovingian princes, of the company's servants at the court of the great Mogul. And when the Mohammedans had become numerous, and a fitting season had arrived, the sheikh would point out a well-known Koran text, and would proclaim war against the surrounding pagan kings. And so the movement, which had been begun by the school, would be continued by the sword. 
It may, however, be doubted whether the Arab merchants alone would have spread Islam over the Niger Plateau. On the east coast of Africa they have possessed settlements from time immemorial. Before the Greeks of Alexandria sailed into the Indian Ocean, before the Tyrian vessels, with Jewish supercargoes, passed through the straits of Bab el-Mandeb, the Arabs of Yemen had established factories in Mozambique and on the opposite coast of Malabar, and had carried the trade between the two lands, selling to the Indians ivory, ebony, slaves, beeswax, and gold dust brought down in quills from the interior by the Negroes, to whom they sold in return the sugar beads and blue cotton goods of Hindustan. In the period of the Caliphs these settlements were strengthened and increased, in consequence of civil war, by fugitive tribes from Oman and other parts of the Arabian Peninsula. These emigrants made Africa their home. They built large towns which they surrounded with orchards of the orange tree and plantations of the date. They introduced the culture of tobacco, sugar-cane, and cotton. They were loved and revered by the Negroes. They made long journeys into the interior for the purposes of trade. Yet their religion has made no progress, and they do not attempt to convert the blacks. Their towns resemble those of the Europeans. They dwell apart from the natives and above them. The Mohammedans who entered the Niger regions were not only the Arab merchants, but also the Berbers of the desert, who, driven by war or instigated by ambition, poured into the Sudan by tribes, seized lands and women, and formed mulatto nationalities. Of these, the Fulars are the most famous. They were originally natives of northern Africa. Having intermarried, during many generations, with the natives, they have often the appearance of pure Negroes, but they always call themselves white men, however black their skins may seem to be. In the last century they were dispersed in small and puny tribes. Some wandered as gypsies, selling wooden bowls. Others were roaming shepherd clans, paying tribute to the native kings, and suffering much ill-treatment. In other parts they lived a bandit life. Sometimes, but rarely, they resided in towns which they had conquered, pursued commerce, and tilled the soil. Yet in war they were far superior to the Negroes. If only they could be united, the most powerful kingdoms would be unable to withstand them. And finally their day arrived. A man of their own race returned from Mecca, a pilgrim and a prophet, gathered them like wolves beneath his standard, and poured them forth on the Sudan. The pilgrimage to Mecca is incumbent only on those who can afford it but hundreds of devout Negroes every year put on their shrouds and beg their way across the continent to Massawa. There, taking out a few grains of gold dust cunningly concealed between the leaves of their Korans, they pay their passage across the Red Sea and tramp it from Jiddah to Mecca, feeding as they go on the bodies of the camels that have been left to die, and whose meat is lawful if the throat is cut before the animal expires. As soon as the Negroes, or Takruri, as they are called, arrive in the holy city, they at once set to work, some as porters, and some as carriers of water in leather skins. Others manufacture baskets and mats of date leaves. Others establish a market for firewood, which they collect in the neighbouring hills. They inhabit miserable huts or ruined houses in the quarter of the lower classes, where the sellers of charcoal dwell, 
and where locusts are sold by the measure. Some of these poor and industrious creatures spread their mats in the cloisters of the great mosque, and stay all the time beneath that sacred and hospitable roof. They are subject to the exclamatory fits and pious convulsions so common among the negroes of the southern states. Often they may be seen prostrate on the pavement, beating their foreheads against the stones, weeping bitterly, and pouring forth the wildest ejaculations. The great mosque at Mecca is a spacious square surrounded by a colonnade. In the midst of the quadrangle is the small building called the Kaaba. It has no windows. Its door, which is seldom opened, is coated with silver. Its padlock, once of pure gold, is now of silver gilt. On its threshold are placed every night various small wax candles and perfuming pans filled with aloes wood and musk. The walls of the building are covered with a veil of black silk, tucked up on one side, so as to leave exposed the famous black stone which is niched in the wall outside. The veil is not fastened close to the building, so that the least breath of air causes it to wave in slow undulating movements, hailed with prayer by the kneeling crowd around. They believe that it is caused by the wings of guardian angels, who will transport the Kaaba to paradise when the last trumpet sounds. At a little distance from this building is the Zemzem well, and while some of the pilgrims are standing by its mouth, waiting to be served, or walking round the Kaaba, or stooping to kiss the stone, other scenes may be observed in the cloisters and the square, and, as in the temple at Jerusalem, these are not all of the most edifying nature. Children are playing at games, or feeding the wild pigeons whom long immunity has rendered tame. Numerous schools are going on, the boys chanting in a loud voice, and the master's baton sometimes falling on their backs. In another corner a religious lecture is being delivered. Men of all nations are clustered in separate groups. The Persian heretics, with their caps mounting to heaven, and their beards descending to the earth. The Tartar, with oblique eyes and rounded limbs, and light silk handkerchief tied round his brow. Turks with shaven faces and in red caps, the lean Indian pauper begging with a miserable whine, and one or two wealthy Hindu merchants, not guiltless of dinners given to infidels and of iced champagne. At the same time, an act of business is being done in sacred keepsakes, rosaries made of camel bone, bottles of Zemzem water, dust collected from behind the well, tooth sticks made of a fibrous root such as that which Mohammed himself was wont to use, and coarsely executed pictures of the Kaaba. Mecca itself, like most cities frequented by strangers, whether pilgrims or mariners, is not an abode of righteousness and virtue. As the Tatars say of it, the torch is dark at its foot, and many a pilgrim might exclaim with the Arabian Ovid, I set out in the hopes of lightening my sins, and returned, bringing home with me a fresh load of transgressions. But the very wickedness of a holy city deepens real enthusiasm into severity and wrath. When Abd ul Wahhab saw taverns opened in Mecca itself, and the inhabitants alluring the pilgrims to every kind of vice, 
when he found that the sacred places were made a show, that the mosque was inhabited by guides and officials who were as greedy as beasts of prey, that wealth, not piety, was the chief object of consideration in a pilgrim, he felt as Luther felt at Rome. The disgust which was excited in his mind by the manners of the day was extended also to the doctrines that were in vogue. The prayers that were offered up to Mohammed and the saints resembled the prayers that were once offered up to the daughters of heaven, the intercessors of the ancient Arabs. The pilgrimages that were made to tombs of holy men were the old journeys to the ancestral graves. The worship of one God, which Mohammed had been sent to restore, had again become obscured. The days of darkness had returned. He preached a Unitarian revival. He held up as his standard and his guide the Koran, and nothing but the Koran. He founded a Puritan sect, which is now a hundred years of age, and still remains an element of power and disturbance in the East. Otman Dan Fodio, the black prophet, also went out of Mecca, his soul burning with zeal. He determined to reform the Sudan. He forbade, like Abd ul Wahhab, the smoking of tobacco, the wearing of ornaments and finery. But he had to contend with more gross abuses still. In many Negro lands which professed Islam, palm wine and millet beer were largely consumed. The women did not veil their faces, nor even their bosoms. Immodest dances were performed to the profane music of the drum. Learned men gained a livelihood by writing charms. The code of the Koran was often supplanted by the old customary laws. Dan Fodio sent letters to the great kings of Timbuktu, Hausa, and Bornu, commanding them to reform their own lives and those of their subjects, or he would chastise them in the name of God. They received these instructions from an unknown man, as the king of kings received the letter of Mohammed, and their fate resembled his. Dan Fodio united the Fular tribes into an army which he inspired with his own spirit. Thirsting for plunder and paradise, the Fulars swept over the Sudan. They marched into battle with shouts of frenzied joy, singing hymns and waving their green flags on which texts of the Koran were embroidered in letters of gold. The empire which they established at the beginning of this century is now crumbling away, but the fire is still burning on the frontiers. Wherever the Fulars are settled in the neighbourhood of pagan tribes, they are extending their power and although the immediate effects are disastrous, villages being laid in ashes, men slaughtered by thousands, women and children sold as slaves, yet in the end these crusades are productive of good. The villages are converted into towns, a new land is brought within the sphere of commercial and religious intercourse, and is added to the Asiatic world. The phenomenon of a religious Tamerlane has been repeated more than once in Central Africa. The last example was that of Omar the Pilgrim, whose capital was Segu, and whose conquest extended from Timbuktu to Senegal, where he came into contact with French artillery, and forever lost his prestige as a prophet. But we are taught by the science of history that these military empires can never long endure. It is probable that Mohammedan Sudan will in time become a province of the Turks. Central Africa, as we have shown, received its civilization not from Egypt, 
but from the grand morocco of the middle ages egypt has always lived with its back to africa its eyes and often its hands on syria and arabia abyssinia was not subdued by the caliphs because it was not coveted by them and there was little communication between egypt and the sudan Muhammad Ali was the first to re-establish the kingdom of the pharaohs in Ethiopia and to organize Negro regiments. Since his time, the Turkish power has been gradually spreading towards the interior, and the expedition of Baker Pasha, whatever may be its immediate result, is the harbinger of great events to come. Should the Turks be driven out of Europe, they would probably become the emperors of Africa, which in the interest of civilization would be a fortunate occurrence. The Turkish government is undoubtedly defective in comparison with the governments of Europe, but it is perfection itself in comparison with the governments of Africa. If the Egyptians had been allowed to conquer Abyssinia, there would have been no need of an Abyssinian expedition, and nothing but Egyptian occupation will put an end to the wars which are always being waged, and always have been waged in that country between bandit chiefs. Those who are anxious that Abyssinian Christianity should be preserved need surely not be alarmed, for the Pope of Abyssinia is the Patriarch of Cairo, a Turkish subject, and the Abuna, or Archbishop, has always been an Egyptian. But the Turks no longer have it in their power to commit actions which Europeans would condemn. They now belong to the civilized system, they are subject to the law of opinion. Already they have been compelled by that mysterious power to suppress the slave-making wars which were formerly waged every year from Cordofan and Senar, and which are still being waged from the independent kingdoms of Darfur, Waday, Bagirmi and Bornu. Wherever the Turks reign, a European is allowed to travel. Wherever a European travels, a word is spoken on behalf of the oppressed. That word enters the newspapers, passes into a diplomatic remonstrance, becomes a firman, and a governor, or commandant, in some sequestered province of an oriental empire suffers the penalty of his misdeeds. It should be the policy of European powers to aid the destruction of all savage kingdoms, or at least never to interfere on their behalf. It has now been shown that a vast region within the dark continent, the world beyond the sandy ocean, is governed by Asiatic laws and has attained an Asiatic civilization. We must next pass to the Atlantic side and study the effects which have been produced among the Negroes by the intercourse of Europeans. It will be found that the transactions on the coast of Guinea belong not only to the biography of Africa, but also to universal history, and that the domestication of the Negro has indirectly assisted the material progress of Europe and the development of its morality. The program of the next chapter will be as follows. The rise of Europe out of darkness, the discovery of Western Africa by the Portuguese, the institution of the slave trade, and the history of that great republican and philanthropic movement which won its first victory in the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, its last in the taking of Richmond in 1865. End of section 27. End of chapter 2. Religion.